Welcome to the very first episode of our first season of the Big Sparkast. I'm Adi Sengupta, Chief Executive at Common Purpose. We really wanted to make this podcast because in a world full of boundaries, I deeply believe that we have to be having conversations which are bigger than ourselves. We need hope, we need courage, and we need purpose. So we have to have these conversations. Not talking at or over each other, but sitting down and taking the time to have conversations about things that really, really matter. So that's what we will be doing here on this podcast. Each episode, we'll be talking to people who are driving big conversations, no matter how tough they may be. And as we have these conversations, we hope they will help you all develop new perspectives and spark curiosity. And we hope that through these sparks, no matter how big or small, that they can drive some change in your world. In today's episode, I am delighted to be sitting down with Paul Polman. Paul is the epitome of courageous leadership. He's a renowned business leader, author, campaigner, and influencer. Many of us came to know Paul as the CEO of Unilever, where famously for over a decade during his tenure, Unilever was one of the best performing companies in its sector. Paul is now the co-founder and chair of Imagine. He has been involved in a variety of initiatives across the world, including in the development of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals and continues to work with organizations and industries across the world to bring about the 2030 Agenda. In 2021, just last year, Paul co-authored Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Purpose has always been at the heart of everything for you. You know, you've driven that ruthlessly at Unilever. And, and obviously, it was, it was there well before you started talking about it, you know, in the context of work and policy, etc. Where does that come from? So I'm just taking you back a little bit to, to who you are and what you're about. Where does that, that sort of deep commitment and conviction about purpose come from? So tell, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I don't know, Adi, and you're too kind in the uh, introduction, but, you know, it's probably you have to go back to your roots. In fact, I was born in 1956 and my parents uh, were deprived of their education because of World War II. And we grew up in a family of six. My father held two jobs and worked very hard. But in between, they found the time to participate in community activities. They met in Boy Scouts. They were part of church and there were always other people at our home. We had... Uh, I have uh, six brothers and sisters in total. But the only thing that they really were fighting for is that we would have a better life than they were being uh, exposed to. And they wanted peace in Europe. They wanted us to have the education. And that's basically what it was. And uh, my mother actually was a school teacher. And she wouldn't let us get out of the house until the, the homework was checked and approved. And, you know, we've had many fights and thought it was unfair. But looking back, you know, my mother passed on last year at the tender age of 92. But looking back, I'm very grateful because she knew what was important. And uh, so it instilled these values in 
community values or shared values of, uh, you know, dignity, respect, compassion, equity. These were the things I grew up. And as you then develop your life and, and uh, you know, from your studies, uh, from your experiences afterwards, be it the companies you work for or the experiences in life that you encounter, be it, uh, you know, in Newcastle where I saw second generation unemployment for the first time, shipbuilding steel, coal, all that gone belly up. Or climbing Kilimanjaro with eight blind people mm-hmm. was a transforming experience. Or being in Mumbai during the terrible attack and yeah. seeing people around us losing their lives unnecessarily, obviously. And and many of the other things. Yeah, you know, you form your crucibles. And I've discovered a long time ago that I won, as I call it, the lottery ticket of life. That I was born in the Netherlands. The government paid for my education. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you. But I realize more and more how few people have that privilege, independent and do what they want and all that. So so for me, it's then a matter of putting myself to the service of others. Otherwise, the world doesn't function. And, and really, it's not sustainability for me as, as much as human development, as fighting for these basic values that we talked about. I often wonder, Paul, just just extending this conversation, and we'll we'll talk about you know your all the things that you drove as a as a business leader. Do you often wonder whether having grown up with these kind of values and things that were absolutely instilled in you by your by your parents, by your mother, by your education, what would you have done had you not been you know the Paul Polman that we know you to be? <laughs> Well, I don't know, because I wanted to be a priest and one of my buddies from my elementary school that I still, uh, we see each other once a year was a group of yeah. four or five people from elementary yeah. school for a weekend now, and they're all over the world. He mm-hmm. was asked that question, what would I have become if I would have become a priest? And he said, he probably might have been the Pope now in Rome, but that I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, life is a little bit serendipity. I wanted to be a yeah. priest and then... I changed obviously and then wanted to be a doctor and uh, with a little bit of uh, of luck, I ended up in business and I've always been a little bit in creating opportunities and then seizing the one that looks the most attractive and not looking back. So I don't know the, the what ifs or what my life would have been, I don't know. I think I've been very fortunate to have had uh, and still have a life where I can feel useful, where I can make a difference, hopefully touch a lot of people along the way, make this a better world in the process and that's what i'm trying to do and it's so easy to fall into the self-serving uh attractiveness of having a retirement on the golf course or going sailing in the bahamas mm. or whatever it is but i feel as long as i can have an impact in helping uh make the sustainable development goals come alive not leaving anybody behind attacking the two most burning issues of climate change and inequality then i really mm. spend my time there uh, it's equally rewarding, in my opinion, in a different way, but it's equally rewarding. So with the work that we're now doing with our foundations or trying to change the face of educational leadership like you're doing or accelerating the changes for companies, it's probably the best thing we can do right now for my children as well. And and yeah. it's not for my legacy. It's really to ensure <laughs> that everybody has that same opportunity that we just took for granted, to be honest. No, absolutely. I mean, and and I think I I think we all, whoever's had the opportunity to to know you a bit more, know that whether you know whether it's you as a priest or you as a as a doctor that you also wanted to be, you've lived 
absolutely those values even as a as a business leader which is what i wanted to pick up and and talk about and and we'll talk about that in the context of your book but i've heard you speak about this so much and it it hits me hard every time i hear you say this that profits from a company should come from solving world's problems not creating them which is at the heart of net positive yeah. tell us a bit more about this this and how do you think companies can play a role in the conversations around the world's problems because i know those are the things that matter to you the most and this podcast this conversation is absolutely about the issues that matter to people like you so i've always believed that the companies are there actually to solve the world's problems that has been the origin of companies but we might have lost it in the last 50 years when the doctrine of shareholder primacy or the milton friedman doctrine took over and that's not our best time and it's for me incomprehensible to see that we can accept a system where some people can enrich themselves enormously at the expense of planet earth or fellow citizens it's just something that we should have been earlier uh, apprehensive about and and changed you know but when there were a few people in the world and the 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 planet had its own capabilities to regenerate and and correct for our mistakes when we were not so globally connected and the po- poverty and misery of others was sometimes hidden uh, behind the veil uh, you know our moral consciousness was probably not as developed but now we're at a point that we are starting to discover that our linear extractive way of producing and consuming is just not sustainable anymore you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet and anything you can't do forever is by definition unsustainable you know this world is let's say 4.6 billion years old if i put it on a scale of 46 years human beings have only been around 4 hours the industrial okay. revolution started 1 minute ago and in that 1 minute we've lost 50% of the world's forests in the last five decades 68% of the world's amphibians birds reptiles and so you know when is it our turn and so i've always been having that struggle to figure out even in these bigger companies which i know it's not easy but how can we have a model that that functions because if society doesn't function if too many people feel they're not participating or don't have a fair chance if we're using up all these scarce resources then you know ultimately that goes at the expense of business as well yeah. every business is affected by climate change every business is affected by wars or conflicts as we see now again once more every business is affected by these global pandemics mm-hmm. uh, you know covid is not the first one we've had sars zika ebola asian flu and there are mm-hmm. probably four or five waiting around the corner all of that direct result of us destroying uh, nature or also another diseases So you know Hubert Reeves said it very well when he said man is the most insane species he worships an yeah. invisible god and destroys a visible nature not knowing that the visible nature he destroys is the invisible god he worships in the first place so i'm always been puzzled by that and and it goes so against these values that we are first yeah. and foremost citizens of planet earth and all. so businesses increasingly start to understand this they know there's no business case in enduring poverty and increasingly the good thing is that more and more businesses also understand that they can be bystanders in a system that give them life in the first place business is 65% of the global economy probably um 80% of the job creation 90% of the financing now so if we don't get business actively behind these famous sustainable development goals it doesn't work that these uh, 17 goals 
which have as a simple objective to irreversibly eradicate poverty and do that in a more sustainable and equitable way. And 90% of these goals require business as well yeah. to be part of it. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. So we've come to a, the point in the beginning, people were saying that's all nice and well, but it doesn't fit with the shareholder and it doesn't fit with the longer-term profitable models. I just yeah. can't make these two work. And people saw it as a trade-off. But we're well beyond that point because we've waited so long. We are now at the point that the cost of not acting, COVID, for example, or increasingly mm. with climate change, is significantly higher than the cost of acting. So all of a sudden, it has moved to an enormous opportunity. All of mm. a sudden, the the interest of the longer-term shareholder might be aligned with the other stakeholders. Unilever, which was very much a multi-stakeholder model, that ultimately the shareholders did also well with a 300% return in years and, you know, and and whilst taking care of all the other stakeholders as good as we could. And one of the most sustainable organizations for yeah. years, year on year. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. these two are increasingly reconcilable, if you want to. And now people understand that you that you drive profits through purpose, that an organization needs to build value by values. And that it's important not to just focus on a few billionaires, but on the billions of people that we need to serve. And I've always felt that to be a little bit more meaningful exercise. Many mm -hmm. people think uh, greed is good, but longer term, I always believe uh, generosity will win. So that's what drives me in a sense. But but now it's also better for business. And we don't need to defend it anymore or explain it. We now have enough data that shows, you know, broadly that uh, that companies that are more purpose-driven and run for these multiple stakeholders and longer term are also better performing. Not always. You still need smart strategies and invest in R&D and hire the right people and do the right M&A and all the things that are the normal parts of business. But your chances are so much higher if you run these responsible models. Well, I want to talk about net positive and, you know, you talk a lot about the need for courageous leadership in that. And that's really something I want to want to draw. But just sticking with the early years when you, you know, when you were trying to reconcile your values, things that really mattered to you most and trying to start to drive them as a business leader. It must have been really hard, you know. Did you not think of giving up? You know, must have felt like you were pushing water up the hill. You know, describe that time to me and how you how you still kept and why why did you still still keep going and how you managed to keep going? It's dangerous to say my values are devalues because they might be different for different companies, different parts of the world. Yeah. So you have to be careful not to be either self-congratulating or or uh, or sure. um, or post-rationalizing, whatever you want to call it. I've always felt that, you know, just doing the right thing makes life easier. And, and the golden rule, do unto others and the planet, as you would have done mm. unto yourself, is a good guideline as a starting point. You find it in all religions, if you want to. So I've always felt it's better to run the business for the longer term and making the right decisions to grow the business longer term than mm. to be a CEO for five to seven years like most of them. And sort of milk it and then reset the base and eventually yeah, you'll be out of business. I've always felt that if you made a mistake, you take the big hit and mm. you don't try to hide it. I've I've always felt that, you know, when you have people working for you, you need to be sure that they're well protected, that they have living wages, that 
you know, that the suppliers are recognized in a value chain and not just squeeze for mm. the lowest cost. So many of these things are basically doing doing the right thing. But because we have sometimes these boundaries around us that force us into different behavior, we get these uh, adverse results. No CEO wants climate, more climate change or more inequality or more poverty. And yet collectively, we're certainly moving in that direction. And I think it's because some of these boundaries our accounting mm. system only rewards financial capital returns. Our our financial system pushes you to shorter and shorter term behavior. So mm. I've always felt that if we know it's wrong, why not just try to go for the right thing? Nobody can attack you for that. It's the same as the targets we set. Some people thought in Unilever I was outright stupid as a stupid to set these incredible targets. But why not set the targets that the world needs? And and why not say then? I feel uncomfortable. I can't do it alone. That's mm. the way we make these breakthroughs that the world is now looking for. It mm. can't be solved anymore by incrementalism or hiding behind others. But it's difficult because probably if you put yourself back 12, 13, 14 years ago when we started, there weren't that many data available that this was the right mm. way of doing things. Doing it. There was a yeah. lot of pushback by some of the people. Now that pushback made us perhaps a little bit better because uh, if if it's but with skeptics, it forces you to really rehearse the argument and think better about the strategies you put in place. But it was also understandable because even today, uh, we have so many different standards. You know, it's not 100% clear what the priorities are when you have these trade-offs. Sometimes there's short-term costs, uh, who is going to bear them? So ultimately, that courage to do the right thing comes from your strong sense of purpose. Yeah. I've always felt that, uh, you know, it wasn't about myself. It was it was about my, putting myself to the service of others. Yeah. And I always have felt that I benefit from that. If you invest in people, people invest in you. If you invest in your stakeholders, your stakeholders invest in you. And we saw that when we got this ridiculous uh, attempt by Kraft Heinz with financial manipulation to buy Unilever, all the stakeholders were following for us. You know, we stood by the world, the world stood by us. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's all in anything in life, not only with your own personal circle and friendships, but it's also in business. So to some extent, this book, Net Positive, if anything, perhaps if you want to simplify it and thinking out loud, is to bring humanity back to business. Spreadsheets, win-lose, day trading. We've lost the human side of business. Mm. And to some extent, what we've seen in COVID is that organizations that were run by real human beings. And fortunately, we had some of them, not enough, but that showed a high level of empathy, compassion, humanity, humility, you know, that were the strong purpose-driven leaders. They tended to excel more trust and in very uncertain times and, and actually fare better. And on the sustainable side, we now have data that companies that decarbonize faster or take care of human rights in their value chain yeah pay their people more decent wages, that these companies are actually performing better. They're the ones yeah. that people want to work for. <laughs> and the success of Absolutely. your company is the people that work for you. Yeah. of what people tell you. It's not the shareholder. It's, it's the people that make the world tick. And also the choices that the next generation are making at the minute, you know, totally, about, totally. about working for these. Transparent. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Paul, you just said something that that that's made me think about, you know, the thing around there's always a bit of a power dynamic that kicks in, you know, when you're trying to drive something like this, isn't it? 
How have you navigated that consciously or unconsciously? And what would you say to our listeners about their ability to navigate that? Because you're such a big, big advocate of, you know, there are faults in the system and we should be doing more to address the faults in the system. And sometimes power dynamics, well, oftentimes play that role around being able to have these difficult conversations. You talked about SDGs. Now, how do we as individuals or organizations or government or indeed in society, what do we do to overcome these sorts of power dynamics that often come in the way to be able to have these conversations, to deal with these faults in the system? Yeah, and it's not easy. And uh, and again, I, I learned a lot by making many more mistakes than doing the right thing and, uh, <laughs> and then correcting fast enough to not let it get to me. But, you know, there, there are probably different types of power dynamics. One might be eco and that's more related to the uh, male testosterone thing and that uh, we have to get rid of. I mean, I worked very hard to ensure that we had a balanced board and a balanced organization mm -hmm. from day one. And mm -hmm. Unilever has definitely achieved that. But there might also be power dynamics because of the different needs of the stakeholders. So mm -hmm. then you spend a lot of time on reconciling. In the beginning in uh, Unilever, we went back to the core of the company and and worked on people's individual purpose and then the company purpose so that we collectively developed something that was bigger than each of us individually. When the company was not doing so well the preceding 10 years, we had become self-serving. Uh, we had become inward focused and frankly uh, dysfunctional. Now we created something that was bigger, leveraging our combined strengths, serving the people out there instead of serving ourselves. That was very appealing to people. And as we developed our our own purpose, collectively, we developed then the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which had as overall goal to decouple our growth from environmental impact. Mm -hmm. People understood that we had to not be part of, of putting more pressure on these planetary boundaries. And then we also added to that increased overall social impact. If you can't take care of your own people or the people in your value chain, then it's unlikely that you can take care of your customers or consumers as well. So we... We saw this as as logical business drivers, to be honest. Yeah, so opposition came. Some, so we had to work on the board and we changed our board and we did a lot of education because if you're pioneering and making the dust, so to speak, versus eating yeah. the dust, you have yeah. to be sure that you're not too far ahead. At times, I was too far ahead or my explanations weren't convincing enough. And I, I had to rethink how mm. to communicate to the financial market was not easy then. Now it's a little bit, you know, mm. easy to do. But that whole value creation model that we were trying mm. to put in place was kind of a novel model. Yeah. But uh, conviction helps you. If you have a strong purpose, I think that helps. And if that is backed up by a collective purpose, mm. we saw all of a sudden, you know, that we were attracting 2 million people a year to uh, Unilever, the third most looked up company after Google and Apple. You know, we saw our engagement scores go through the roof. Mm. our employer brand in every country. Mm. So we, we were onto something because mm. the most important thing is, is your values that you talk about in a company or, or your culture, which is basically values mm. and behavior. But the other thing obviously is, is the people and, and the stronger mm. and better people you can hire, the more chances of success do you have. So yeah. we knew we were onto something and we increasingly started to see the business results come. And then it's easier when we started to show that our more purpose-driven brands were growing twice as fast and were also more profitable, the penny dropped for a lot of people. When we could show them that we were attracting the right people and 
you know, and that that we actually were also able to get better financial results than the penny, penny dropped for some people. So bit by bit, we we won them over. Uh, what what so many companies forget is, is is something that Stephen Covey said in his book Seven Habits. In that book, he said, "You cannot talk yourself out of things you have behaved yourself into." Yeah. So I always felt very much behave we have yourself. to behave ourselves into that. You cannot ask to be trust to trusted if you're not trustworthy. You yeah. cannot ask to be respected if you're not respectful. You cannot ask to have trust that you will deliver if you don't show continually mm. these uh, these improvements. And that's what we mm. did. And I, I knew it was a question of time, but after four or five years, I think we won enough of a critical mass of people over mm. and putting in the company to create mm. that momentum and start working on the broader things. Uh, first step, always our own journey. Mm. You can't mm. have a, a company transformations without leadership transformations. Then our company journey, which was about five years, but then mm. as we gained confidence, we also gained respect in the communities and could play a role increasingly in these broader transformational changes outside of our company alone. And those were the most exciting and the most important ones. Yeah. Paul, I remember when um, when you were talking about about how the how, you know, how do you drive this as a leader? I remember you saying to me one time that you had lots and lots of conversations in the organization and as well as your stakeholders. I mean, how did you use conversation as a bit of a tool to get people to understand the importance of things like the curiosity, the responsibility, and indeed courage, which we'll talk about in the context of your book? How did you do that? Because there's something about role modeling and doing it yourself, you know, which I, I agree is very important. And your point about don't just talk, you know, walk the walk. But there's something about getting people over the line to believe in it yeah. enough to well, see Well, the, the first thing is, if you have a uh, strong enough purpose and people have co-created yeah. that and buy into that, yeah. then the next step that we did was to say, okay, with that purpose, how do we translate that? into bigger and bolder objectives for the company. So first of all, we said we need to take responsibility of our total impact in the world. Many companies only take responsibility for their scope one and two, what's under direct control. They they can outsource their value chain and also outsource their responsibilities. Then you you set yourself objectives that are a little bit more courageous, Mm -hmm. objectives Mm -hmm. that the world needs, not objectives you can get away with. So, so you create more courage individually and collectively. Then you set goals that you make public, you measure these goals, um, you hold yourself accountable. Um, and then, you know, you find that these objectives that you set are so audacious that you have to do it with other people as well. You can't do it alone. And so you get into these broader partnerships. Uh, you know, the most difficult thing is into getting people along in the beginning when the data isn't there yet, is to do a lot of storytelling, which is important. Mm. But more mm. importantly, as you what you call walking the talk, you know, as people call it the shadow of the leader, they might yeah. not necessarily see or, or retain what you say, but they certainly remember what you do. So in every country visit, I was out 70% of the time in the markets, many of mm. the, in the emerging markets. I would mm. go first to people's homes directly from the airport. I would meet some of our customers. Mm. By then, I didn't need to see any business charts. I mm. could understand what you know was going on in the business just by hearing mm. it from, from our key stakeholders. Also, helping people. We we got out of quarterly reporting, out of giving guidance. We changed our compensation systems to the longer term, so people understood that 
we were serious about this, that we were also yeah. willing to move some uncomfortable boundaries. Many companies yeah. even today have done to yeah. provide the right framework for people to succeed. And then yeah. it's a matter of, you know, little successes become bigger successes when you celebrate them. Yeah. We had a wonderful program in Unilever that I just loved and everybody had tears in their eyes. Uh, we, we call it the unsung heroes. Right. Everybody from all parts of the organization doing amazing things. Going mm. in the weekends and changing light bulbs to make them more energy efficient or painting mm. the cars so that the police wouldn't stop you in emerging markets because they look spick and span and, and had our brands on it. Or uh, defending your neighborhood in the Arab Spring Revolution at your own risk. Or one person donating one of their organs to a person who had just entered the company but needed a, an mm. organ. It's a question of life and death. And they thought it was just normal to do. So these mm. heroic actions of people and celebrating mm. them often mm. send a strong signal on what is the behavior that you want. And it's mm. it's this combination of right values and behavior that ultimately drives your culture. And it mm. takes a while and it's not universal, but I've never been a big proponent on throwing money at it or setting quotas and, mm. and paying people mm. for performance. I've always felt that it might be a little bit more difficult to implement, but that you that you expect the right behavior, but you actually eliminate people out of the system or move mm. them on if you want to be nice that mm. don't uh, that don't behave that way. So I would never pay mm. a factory manager for safety. I would expect mm. them to have safety. But mm. if they don't, then they better shape up or find a job somewhere else. I would never mm. pay someone for diversity. I find it a shame and, and a pity that we need to have these quotas. I understand it. But we never had quotas in Unilever, yet we moved diversity forward faster than any company mm. we benchmarked ourselves with. Because we said, mm. if you don't believe in these values, work somewhere else. We respect you, mm. but work somewhere else. So to get it really ingrained in an organization yeah. is really what yeah. this is all about. That's hard work. It's hard work. Yeah. It's hard work, Paul. And it's also the other thing that you talk about a lot, which which every example that you've shared to me is like act of courage, act of courage, act of courage. And you talk about that lot, a lot in your book, you know, the whole thing around courageous leadership. I mean, talk to me a little bit about that because I think sometimes what the world needs is that, you know, is that inspiration to hear that more, you know, everybody know, they know it in theory, but when they hear the stories, like you said, about those acts of courage, it inspires people more, you know, how did you approach it? <laughs> <laughs> well, Adi, some call it acts of courage. Others call it acts of stupidity. <laughs> and, and, it's all and, relative. <laughs> it's all relative and history will tell us. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, so, so, you know, what what goes through the heart stays in the uh, to the brain, stays longer than what just goes to the brain without going through the heart. Mm -hmm. So courage comes from the French word cur, which, which is heart. So... So we felt that, um, you know, courageous leaders are people that understand, uh, you know, what the world needs. They have a high awareness of what is out there, you know, a certain level of empathy or compassion, that they understand the power of working together. They are strongly purpose-driven. And those leaders tend to be more successful. I don't know if it's courage or not. It is. I, I think it's more. it takes more courage to say one thing and do another thing. It takes more courage to try to get away with very low targets, which you know are not enough. Yeah. It takes more courage to actually 
take money away from people that really deserve it to enrich yourself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's all a, it's all a definition of matter of definition. So I've always felt that, um, and I think fortunately the people that that were building Unilever and in that in that time, collectively we would be better off investing in in others and and using our company size and scale to drive this more transformative uh, change. You know, this is not a crisis that we have of climate change or inequality or food security. The crisis that we really have is one of greed, of apathy, of selfishness. And uh, that's why it's so important to work on our own inner core before we are able to change the outer core. And that is what you are doing as well with, uh, with Common Purpose. So, And we've never been disappointed in that, I think, collectively, you see that you can achieve much more if you operate that way, in my opinion. And now is not the time to be on our own anyway. The world has too many problems for us to need to combine our energies to come together. No, you're totally right. They're too big. You know, the famous African proverb that alone you can go fast, together you can go far. Yeah. uh, You know, these problems that we have now, these challenges or opportunities, I I look at them as opportunities, are of such magnitude that, that uh, you do need to work together. If you talk longer term, multi-stakeholders, sustainable, then mm. by definition, you start talking about partnerships. It has to be a partnership for the common good because partnerships mm. can only work if there is trust. Part comes from truth, but other things need to be done. You cannot be trusted if you're not trustworthy. So these partnerships are huge investments and very difficult to do. Once you have that level of trust, one of the reasons, by the way, why we put 50 targets out there, people said you're absolutely crazy to put 50 targets out there, you're going to get attacked. But I felt the only and fastest way perhaps to build trust at that time was to be very transparent. Mm. Transparency builds trust, and that's the basis of prosperity. So mm. we built that trust. And as soon as we had that trust, which was also shown in GlobeScan, where we were twice as trusted as even as the wonderful mm. companies like Patagonia. Mm. But that allowed us then to build partnerships that probably were new. The NGO community was very, and rightfully so, very uh, skeptical about business. Yeah. Governments wouldn't want to get involved in some of these partnerships. But all of a sudden in Unilever, we fought, formed partnerships with the Gates Foundation or Divit or USAID yeah. or uh, you know UNICEF or World Food Programme allowed us together to do some amazing things that I think allowed in us reaching deeper on the bottom to the bottom of the pyramid and mm. building our business faster in the end. I mean, we've we've had a very interesting conversations in the past, haven't we, Paul, about how at the heart of building trust you, you know, is that need to cross boundaries. And that is really hard. You know, you've got to take people with you and you've got to have many difficult conversations to be able to do that. Willing to listen to the uncomfortable truth sometimes, you know, it takes yes. courage. It's yes. not easy. Yes. You know, I've had many partnerships that I said, well, why would I, you know, do I really want to be in this room? Or, mm. um, you know, is this the right thing? But then you have to bite your tongue. You have to say, don't be mm. so arrogant or have mm. prejudice. Look at mm. the strengths that these partnerships bring. And, and especially a lot of the partnerships we have with civil society, they were mm. so much closer to the, the citizens we wanted to serve. They were much more aware of the broader issues in the field where most of these things mm. happen. When I was asked to chair the food security task force for the G20 in Los Cabos by President Calderon at that time, Mm. it was usually only the business community. But because we invited Oxfam and Save the Children Mm. and some of the others, 
all of a sudden we were talking women land rights, we were talking biofuel and, and so forth. So the issues that we were trying to attack becomes, became so much better. And that's what you want ultimately, you know. Yeah. That type of a, it's a partnership for the common good, which is really captured in this goal 17 of the Sustainable Development Goals. It's not a contractual partnership. It's it's really a partnership for the common good. Yeah. It's difficult to understand for a lot of people. No, it is very difficult to understand because a lot of people think it's all about negotiation and compromise. You know, it's not. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> it's a totally different. It's a partnership for humanity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you said something about listening, which I think goes at the heart of partnership. Because at the heart of partnership is, you know, sometimes you're listening because you're only preparing to say the next thing. But if you really want to form real trust and partnership, you've got to listen, genuine listening. How have you as a leader over the years? Because I know and I've seen you do it. I've seen you. So you can't you can't brush this question aside and say, say anything that you won't persuade. How do you get people to really listen? And no, what, I'm do, I'm you, what do you listen to as well? I'm interested. Yeah, I'm a bad listener, so I wouldn't use myself as an example. But it, it listens. Why do you say that? Well, I think I'm a bad listener because I'm so enthusiastic about doing things and <laughs> sometimes then you get ahead of yourself or you don't yeah. deal yeah. with some of the things that you first have to go through or the trust building and the deeper understanding of issues. And fortunately, I've been blessed having a lot of people around me that probably were better listeners and picked up things that I might not have picked up on. But it right. really starts, in my opinion, in many ways. But listening is with the all your senses, including the heart. Mm. So that's mm. where it comes to courage again. In our book, we start the first chapter, Do You Care? So, so the mm. best listening is with all your senses in terms of, of trying to see what is happening out there. It's mm. the difference between compassion and empathy. I've always felt that the more I spend my time amongst the people that I'm trying to help, the better I understand how I can help. So I learned a lot from leaders that are not the conventional leaders like Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela's or, or um, you know, Gandhi's. But the, but the leaders are, you know, the ones that work with the blind and deaf blind in our mm. foundation in Africa or mm. the ones that were the first ones going out there with Ebola or, or mm. with COVID or, you know, the teachers in schools. A lot of these professions were exposed during COVID, which we call mm. the most vulnerable positions. But mm. we also found out that they are the most important ones in society. We would go out in Africa and Asia to the rural communities. I always would talk to women and to farmers mm. and understand what was there. So it's listening with your eyes, with your heart as much, and trying to find out where you can help. As it's fascinating to learn, but where can you help, you know? We were this weekend in uh, Scotland looking at uh, regenerative agriculture and rewilding, which is absolutely needed as we need to restore biodiversity. Yeah. The whole idea of net positive is that we need to think regenerative, restorative, reparative. We cannot just be in the CSR less bad mode that just doesn't work anymore. But it's not easy to do. So to go there and talk to all these people, some wonderful farmers that are trying <laughs> things with enormous passion or, uh, you know, a botanist and others that are working. Yeah. It's only by being there and understanding the complexities and how it's all linked, including ourselves. There's yeah. a network that we, you know, 
haven't discovered. It's kind of sad that more people are shooting now to space to try to discover something when we don't even know what's under the first layer of Earth. So if we would first understand that we are all connected here and how that works, and if you disrupt one thing, you disrupt other things, then I think you become more conscious of where you can make a difference and, and why you're yeah. here. Paul, in, in net positive, and I keep coming back to it because it's inspired me so much, you explain there's one line, it's almost verbatim, that by healing the world first, you can make more sustainable and in, you know inclusive societies. You'll, of course, satisfy your investors and shareholders as well. Oh. Um, you know, if I want our listeners, which is absolutely what I want, you know, to feel that they have the power to drive change as individuals, they're leading organizations, what would you say to them? You know, what what's the core message from Net Positive, you know, that absolutely needs to strike at the heart of people who are genuinely listening? I hope they are genuinely listening <laughs> as we, you and I are talking. Well, you know, the... Uh... To, to be a healing organization, you need to be first healing yourself. To be a purpose-driven organization, you need to have purpose yourself. Just like you cannot be sustainable as a company if you're not sustainable yourself. Mm. So it does start and end with ourselves. And finding out really what, what makes us tick, what makes us mm. work is a very important uh, part of that. Sometimes you get the question like, you know, I'm just one person in a world of 7.5 billion people. What mm. is the difference I can make? And, you know, jokingly, I say to people, try to go to bed with a mosquito in the room that you can see how a, a small thing can make a big difference. But it is ultimately about that. It is about small steps making a big difference. One drinks sustainable tea and then we mm. others drink sustainable tea. Before you know it, you have a movement of mm. people drinking sustainable tea and you you change the miserable life on tea plantations. So in our own lives, uh, our purchase decisions, our ways of living, our, mm. our uh, political choices, they all are very important because individually and then in numbers of all of us add up to collectively important outcomes. So I don't mm. buy the, the thing that people don't make a difference. And, and frankly, you now see the changes, the real changes in society, which are by far not enough and are by far not at the scale that we need. But where we see the most important changes, they're driven from the ground up. Mm. It's amazing to me, as an example, how many employees are now willing to walk out or mm. uh, or choose companies based on, on purpose or walk away from the ones that don't mm. or go on strike, etc. That would have been unheard of even five years ago. It takes mm. courage to do that. But it shows you how passionate these people are. And it's not only the climate movement, it's on the many other things as well. Yeah. So many of these bigger changes are happening on the ground because individuals stood up and created a movement in the end of the day. You know, and I think that is uh, that is still the, the most important driver of change is still the individual. The history has shown that and I think it will continue. Yeah. Paul, I was smiling when you said you talk about yeah, the small things cause the most amount of noise. I've always been, I've always been accused of, you know, small in size but cause a lot of problem. Whether that's been in my family, in my in my school over the years, I completely agree with you. Much as I would like to disagree, you know, it resonates. Well, no, but you are equally passionate, and people <laughs> see when you when you are like like you are. You're passionate about something that the world needs. You, you go after that with a positive attitude and an enormous level of energy. People want to be part of that. That's why we're talking. 
No, that's right. I've also been described as a pocket rocket for my small size. So <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's a that's that's as long a as it's sustainable fuel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the last the last question which I wanted to end on, which which is always inspirational to me when it when it's in a conversation with you, but I know it always is with people who engage with with you. You know, this this podcast series is all about sparking curiosity. Anybody who has any chance of meeting you is kind of totally sparked by curiosity. The thing we never get to ask you is what sparks your curiosity? You spark, you inspire us. What inspires you? What are the books that you're reading now? You know, what are you doing to keeping going, Paul? Because we need people like you to keep going, to keep us going. Well, you definitely need to get oxygen, to be honest. So I like to be amongst people. I like to be out there. I'm not a very much of an office person and never was. You need to get your oxygen from doing other things. So we travel or we uh, we do our family things, but we do also things with our friends in a broader range. You need to read your books. You know, uh, I just read actually Outlast from... Uh, uh, Mukund Rajan, which is an interesting book. About yeah, in fact, I just spoke to Mukund when I was in Delhi. Yeah, I just read his book and now and yeah. I just got some ideas. Sorry, Mumbai, I meant. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a good perspective and yeah. you know a, a book about planetary health is very good. Ling Fu, who is a dear friend, wrote a, a book about her life, which is called Bend but Not Break, referring okay. to bamboo as one of the principles. And she grew yeah. up in the horrible horribly challenging circumstances in uh, in China yeah. during the yeah. Cultural yeah. Revolution. So, and, and then, you know, do different things. But I think at the end of the day, it comes from uh, the combination of, uh, you know, passion, which is really self-centered, uh, translate that into purpose, which is really yeah. centered on others, and trying to do that with a positive attitude. These things are not easy. But I've long discovered that it's better to be an optimist and a pessimist. They both have the same lives, but an optimist has a happier life. And and I've always thought that the best way to drive that change is to create a certain level of hope, point out the enormous opportunities that we have to uh, do this. And that mm. is the, uh, what we are you know, trying to do. And the same story with uh, Net Positive. It's a story. Yeah. The book is a story of hope. It's yeah. a story of enormous opportunity. Uh, businesses and people that seize it, I think, will position themselves better for the future. The ones that don't will increasingly be heading to the graveyard of dinosaurs. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's more yeah. or less in summary. <laughs> no, I was going to ask you, what's your hope with net, net positive? You know, what is what is the, the one thing that you... Yeah. I think the movement, setting the real standard of what good looks like and reframing people away from CSR less bad. In a mm. world that has overshot its planetary boundaries, the mm. only thing that counts is uh, regenerative, restorative, reparative. Mm. Even sustainable is the wrong word, in my opinion, because sustainable mm. means I want to sustain what we have. Mm -hmm. But sustaining mm. what we have isn't working anymore. Even mm. if we would continue to only do what we do now, not more of it, we'd ruin the planet still very quickly. So we need to really think net positive as a, you know, and it's not easy, that journey. And I think that my last point after passion and purpose is, is always mm -hmm. keep a positive attitude. I think the, the most important thing is every day uh, I count my blessings. So <laughs> I'm very fortunate. And if you're in a position to count your blessings, I think you belong to, unfortunately, an increasingly smaller minority in the world. So then it's your duty, it's your obligation to put yourself to the service of the others. And it's no escaping on that one. 
No, absolutely. And, you know, you talked a lot about, uh, right at the start about that whole, that privilege that some of us had for for what we were given in the uh, in the early years of our life. And now is the time to pay back. Yeah, yeah. totally. Well, we should do it our whole lives, but you yeah. become a little bit more conscious and as you are yeah. older. So you yeah. have to work it a little bit harder. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Never too late. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Paul, you said you, you it, it's not about legacy, but I think everything that you're doing is so much about, you know, your legacy and strengthening what what the world needs in massive doses, not not small measure. Yeah, I'm always worried about the word legacy, Adi, because then I've seen so many people taking a wrong decision because they were worried about their legacy. Legacy, ultimately, I know. Yeah. Ultimately, that leadership that we need, that moral leadership, that cooperative yeah. uh, competition yeah. that comes with it, that protecting of the future of humanity doesn't come from my own legacy. It comes from really solving the issues in the world. So ultimately, mm. what counts mm. is, are mm. we addressing these issues fast enough or are we not? And mm. that's the, the ultimate judgment we are held against. Absolutely. One last thing before I let you go. What what would be your call to action to me personally and to and to common purpose? You know, what should I be doing and thinking that I'm not at the moment? <laughs> oh no, you're doing a lot of things and there's only so much we can put on the plate, but you are doing the ultimate noble thing, which is creating really the the next generation of leaders, creating that deeper sense of consciousness, connecting them. What I like especially about common purposes, when you go over these different pillars of society, civil society, private sector, governments, yeah. I've been privileged to be in many of these discussions. Yeah. And it's only if you bring these parties together, if you create yeah. these leaders that can work on that intersection and solve the bigger issues. Yeah. We simply don't have enough of them. So the more we can do that, the more we can scale it, the more we can attach it to practical solutions, leveraging this, these people to come out with real projects together that are stronger mm. than each of them individually can do, the better it is for humanity. A very special thank you to my guest, Paul Pullman, for taking the time to talk to us. If you love this episode, I highly recommend reading Paul's book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. And a very big thank you to all of you. Don't forget to subscribe and we look forward to having you join us again soon.